Hi, listeners. You can now listen to this community podcast production ad-free on Apple Podcasts and access the podcast one week early and get exclusive bonus content. Just hit the subscribe button now on Apple Podcasts. Or if you want access to all of the above, plus video versions of the podcast, head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. I'm Sarah Ferris, true crime podcaster. And I'm Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. And you're listening to Stop the Killing. Hi, Mark. How are you? Hi, Catherine. I'm fine. Mark is a brilliant person who stalked me a little bit. The first time that I heard from Mark, he just cold called me. And I will tell you that the first thing that I ever heard Mark say was, don't hang up. This is not a great call. He might not remember that, Mark. But anyways. So well beyond that, Mark recruited me to join the National Center for School Safety. That is everything that has to do with school safety. Um, yeah, that that kind of describes it. We were looking to create a, a national kind of presence in the National Center for School Safety. We were working most closely with the San Diego Foundation. The San Diego Foundation is a group of parents who got together after the shooting and said, never again, what can we do to prevent this from happening again? And many of the parents who are involved actually lost children. I wanted to ask you to just rewind a little bit. And can you tell me how you ended up in this role and what your background is in the first place, Mark? Sure. You know, it's sort of interesting. We're we're talking about the National Center for School Safety. The University of Michigan about two years ago started an Institute for Firearm Injury Prevention, and I'm one of the co-directors. And a lot of this school work that I'm talking about is a piece, it's a core of what we're doing, but it's only a slice of what we're doing. So my work is always focused on sort of the positive, what goes right in people's lives and kids' lives in particular. So I study resilience. Actually, a a British man, Sir Michael Rudder, kind of came up with this idea of resilience in in humans. And the idea is in physics, it's, you know, how brutal is a physical substance? How much pressure can it take before it breaks? So if you apply that to humans, it's, how much insult does a person take before they break? And by breaking, that could be mental health, depression. It could be picking up a gun and shooting people. And so, you know, about 50% of the time we knew we could predict a violent behavior. But I always wondered about what about the other people? What about the kids who have the similar kind of exposures but don't become violent? What is it about them? So that's kind of what was driving my work. And the way I look at it is you could do a planting in a garden so that the way you plant, the plants help protect each other. You plant marigolds, that keeps away the tomato beetle. You plant carrots, and that keeps away the other kind of beetle. Or you could wait until it gets infested with insects to then spray it. But that's not prevention anymore. I mean, you're going to help make it be a healthy garden and productive, but that's not prevention. So I've always thought about how do I plant and how do I grow? How do I create a healthy garden by improving the strengths of that garden rather than what do I do once it's already starting to break down? And it's that metaphor has guided all the work and all the research I've ever done. So I've been doing that work for a long time. Then about eight years ago, we had an opportunity. The National Institutes of Health said, 
we want to fund a vision for the future for basically child development. So my colleagues and I sat around the table and said, we should apply for this and we should apply for something around firearms. We're doing all this work in violence. Sometimes we'll include an item about firearms, but we haven't really focused on it. So we wrote this grant, which we ended up getting funded. We put together this group and then we did some literature reviews about what do we know and where do we need to go to start addressing the issue of firearm violence in America. We created pilot studies with the intention to kind of start building a field. And we actually put together the first national firearm injury prevention conference in the United States in over 30 years that was focused solely on that. And now that's grown. All of that's grown. That was sort of the precursor to us convincing the university to create this institute. And I'm a community psychologist, um, which is to say that I take psychological methods that psychologists kind of apply um, basic science to human behavior. And I've taken that to apply to community issues with community partnerships. So, I mean, I've dedicated my life to doing applied research where I want to make sure my research inform prevention, inform interventions. And then I've always partnered with local people and communities to either evaluate their programs, like what we've done with the San Diego Foundation, or bring some of our own ideas, like what we've done with the Youth Empowerment Solutions Project, which is an after-school program around youth violence prevention, or honoring what's already happening in the community, like what we've done with the greening work that we do. So yeah, I would say all of my work is sort of dedicated to the idea of solving or addressing human problems and doing so by focusing on what's right in people's lives and how do we build that up and make that stronger and better as a way to keep away the bad stuff. So let me give you an example of that. I love that. Isn't that great? Probably, you guys have probably heard of uh, broken windows theory. A criminologist years ago wrote about the importance of transforming neighborhoods. The idea of broken windows is that when people see a broken window, it sends a message in that neighborhood that, oh, nobody's watching or nobody cares here. So they might throw rocks at the windows and break a few more windows. Now there's more windows and that's a louder message that people are not paying attention here. Then those broken windows lead to the slippery slope of a neighborhood where it goes into decline and high crime. So we developed this idea of a counterpart to that idea of broken windows. So what we create is this idea of busy streets theory. And that is, if you build it, they will come. Consistent with, well, what happens if you do positive things? Can that transform a neighborhood? And we are finding fairly consistently, actually one of the most consistent findings in my entire career, that when you start paying attention to these places that have been ignored and have resulted in this decline. When we compare doing something about those lots, I'm going to talk about those in a minute, the streets that are very similar to them in terms of socioeconomic status, you know, the bad neighbors, similar bad neighborhoods, similar vacancy rate, similar economic strain, similar prior crime. When you clean it up, the crime goes down. And really importantly, people feel better about each other. They feel better about their community. They feel like their city is starting to pay attention to them again. So it builds up their positive aspects of their lives while also reducing fear and actual crime in their lives. Uh, so it's, we call it busy streets theory. And now uh, the, but the point I also wanted to make is in the United States, 
we have a lot of what we call legacy cities. These are cities that in the early 60s, like Flint, Michigan, had one of the highest per capita incomes of the entire nation. And why did they? Because they had 70,000 good paying jobs with pensions and health benefits. So even the lowest people, the blue collar worker, had a safety net. And, you know, people were working in the factories. Well, over time, that went from 70,000 as GM left Flint and went south. Over time, there's now only 7,000 jobs left. But what's left behind is a city of what was at one time like 200,000 people that's under 100,000. So you have abandoned homes, you have abandoned lots. And so you have a lot of vacant properties, vacant land, vacant houses. And what people do is that the houses become worthless and so they leave and they just leave the house behind. There might be three empty lots and two abandoned homes. And Flint is only one example. Detroit is another. Cleveland is another. We worked also in Youngstown, a home of U.S. Steel. That industry is gone. And then when the industry left, it left a big economic decline. So I don't want to end up saying it's people's fault that their neighborhood is like that. It's not. What happens is then the people left behind, maybe they have a job that's staying there, but they can't buy up all the land around them. They can't take care of all those things. We have a project on dumping. We're looking to see if we can prevent dumping on these lots. We've compared if you mow a lot versus let it just get overgrown. We've compared what happens when community engagement is involved at that lot you know, like planting a garden or even mowing it, but that's the community that's involved. And what we pretty consistently find is the more community engagement, the less crime over time. But even some attention to it is less crime than no attention to it. And we've done analyses on, does the crime just go to the next block or the next block? And the answer is, we're not finding it. Neither are some of our colleagues who are doing this. Is the overall crime going down? Well, it is overall, but are we just spreading it to other places two or three miles away? That's possible. But the more eyes on the street, the more social capital you build, the more attention you pay. And these are really cheap. I mean, mow a lawn is not that expensive, right? And once you're on the tractor mowing the lawn, you can do it in many places. And then if you create a community setting where people are growing vegetables together or flowers or a mini park, you know, you can just imagine why making a busy street is a positive thing. Like I said, it is the most consistent finding we have found in anything I've ever done. I think one thing that's also fascinating, I was at the Firearms Injury Prevention Conference in Washington, D.C. not too long ago. And we talked about it, Sarah, because I was yeah. so impressed by the research work that was being done. What is so gripping to me about this is that I've spent a career, right, as a prosecutor, as a law enforcement officer. You deal with whatever you have, but you don't necessarily know how those people got there. You're just cleaning up the mess, so to speak. I went to the conference in Washington to see the researchers who are working on the projects that Mark and a large team are working on. And the research is astonishing and fascinating, every little piece of it, because it's really giving us not supposition, it's giving us data that tells us. Is the crime moving down the street or to the next town over or out into the suburbs? Now we have data on that. We have research on it. And it has such such sprawling impact and, and value 
not here just in the states, but in you know worldwide. It's it's really applicable worldwide. It's fascinating. You know, it's, yeah, it's interesting. I was just talking to some folks actually who are based in London, and you know they're doing greening. They're working in war zones, and they wanted to talk to me about some of the work we're doing. And I you know I said, look, I don't work in war zones. Although we often say, oh, this looks like a war zone. It doesn't really, honestly. But he was this no. one uh, man I was talking to basically noted that like in Mosul between ISIS and what's happened in that city. The idea of greening actually is perfectly fit. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. Have you ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection because it was digital? Or maybe you just lost it? Well, Stubforge.com is here to change that. Imagine this, tickets that not only look but feel like the real deal. Because each ticket from Stubforge is printed on the same quality stock that Ticketmaster uses and printed with genuine ticket printers. It's like holding a piece of the concert, the game or the show right in your hands. But Stubforge isn't just about replacing tickets. With the easy-to-use interactive designer, you can create custom tickets for anything, from concerts to sports games, pregnancy announcements, or parties. Why not make your invitations stand out with tickets that are as unique as your event? And if you're trying to complete a back catalogue of missing tickets, Stubforge offers bulk discounts to make it both easy and affordable. With Stubforge, you can once more give your loved ones physical tickets and see their eyes light up instantly at the best gift you can give. So whether you're looking to reignite your ticket collection, craft the perfect gift or send the coolest invites, head over to stubforge.com. Start creating today and see how Stubforge makes every ticket a story worth saving. Visit stubforge.com and start making tickets today. Just a couple of other just interesting facts. I think we talked about suicide. Almost 60% of all firearm deaths in the United States occurs are suicides. And more of those happen in rural areas and among white people than urban areas and people of color. I think that's important because one of the things I often say when I, when I do a lecture, they say, okay, think about firearm violence. What's the first thing you think about? And many think, A, mass shootings, which is 1%. Or B, interpersonal violence that happens with gangs and then stuff that goes on in inner city, right? When in fact, most of it is actually suicides and in rural areas and 60% of male suicides in the United States are veterans. So the, the firearms oh. is, a, is a very big and complex issue that requires different solutions. So I think that's a really important message for your listeners is that there isn't any one solution. And the idea of learning about, you know, getting some of the data, I often connect this to cars. You know, in the 50s, we were driving, you guys aren't old enough to know or remember days when... Um, Bless you. Maybe you are. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Where we I'm waiting to see where this goes, but yeah. <laughs> where, where we'd have seatbelts. 
We used to just spit in the back of the car. We would sit in the front of the car. I used yeah. to sit. My father had a had a pickup truck. I used to sit in the back while oh, he was yeah. driving around. We used to bring babies home from the hospital. I remember my brothers and sisters just sliding around in their little cocoons on the back seat. Yeah. When I was growing up, we had this tiny little chair that like a one-year-old would sit on. And at one point I said to my grandmother, where did this chair come from? And she said, Oh, we bought it for your father so we could put it on the front seat in our Model T so your father could see out the windshield. <laughs> that's amazing. A Model T. And our cars after that. Yeah. Well, that was right. a, okay. So we have established that we've all got memories of that. Sorry, time. Okay. Well, but it was the number one cause of death by car crashes, the number one cause of death in America. And so we invested literally billions of dollars over a 60-year period and I remember, you probably remember when we first got seatbelts. Oh, yes. And then people objected. When they got mandated, when they got mandated, people objected. And nobody gets in a car now, except actually, uh, interestingly, law enforcement get, I've seen get in the cars and not put on their seatbelt. You know, I mean, it's like, <laughs> oh, put in your seatbelt. He goes, oh, well, I'm just going around the corner, you know. <laughs> but it's become part of our culture. We've actually changed the culture. And we reduced the number right. of deaths by uh, car crashes by 80, 90%. In fact, check this fact out. And we've done that, A, with engineering solutions, behavioral solutions, policy solutions, multiple solutions. Roads are safer, tires are better, cars have airbags, seatbelts are better. We have graduated licensure. Well, we haven't done anything like this for firearms. But what we did with cars is when we had seatbelts, we've transformed society to where it's just commonplace. Everybody puts one on. So the point is, we have to do the same thing about firearms, because in 2017 in the United States, the number of deaths by firearms surpassed those by car crashes in 2017, and it has stayed separated ever since. We don't have 23 data yet, but the lines were going in completely different directions. The car crash line was staying flat. And we had policies around and media campaigns about don't drink and drive, don't let your friends drink and drive. We understood what was going on. We need to do that kind of research so we can translate that into policies and programs because, you know, at least in the Institute, we're not about gun control. We're not about taking away people's guns. We're not about, uh, you know, going after this First Amendment, Second Amendment or anything about it. We're about gun safety. There's close to 400 million guns in private hands in the United States. And that doesn't include police guns or military guns. There's over 100 million homes with a firearm in it. And there are 40,000 deaths, 40, getting closer to 50,000 deaths. Estimates for injuries, which we don't have good data on, unfortunately, is 60 to 100,000 people are injured by firearms. So when you start doing that math, it's actually relatively small. And so I don't want to vilify gun owners. That's not the point. We can be safer, just like we could drive cars, and we've succeeded with all of these solutions, while people are driving faster, and there's more people driving, and there's more cars on the road. And we need to do the same thing here. You know, 40,000 people in this country of 350 million, oh, but you know, you got to die of something. I don't buy that. I don't accept that. A lot of these deaths are deaths that are preventable. And and we don't pay attention to like, okay, it's just one person. It's not just one person. It's their siblings. It's their family. It's their extended family. It's their communities. 
and we have to do a better job. We can put people on the moon and we can reduce crashes and cars. We have to be able to do better than we're doing now and without taking away people's guns. I mean, that's not what this is about. So, You speak a lot of sense there, Mark. That's for sure. I absolutely agree. And Sarah and I have had many conversations. This is our, I think we're in our fourth season on our podcast and a lot of conversations come back around to guns. And I get that there are so many ideas. Are there some that bubble up to the top that are more important or less paid attention to? Well, that's a really good question. Well, I think there's a couple of things. We have a lot of training on gun safety. And, you know, that's one of the things that a lot of people say, oh, we have training, we have training. But we've never evaluated. It's sort of like we have a math program in schools. But if we don't know the kids are learning the math, what good is this program? So one thing is gun safety training and programming. And it may not be that one kind of program fits all. Maybe there's one thing for, you know, teenagers. Maybe there's another thing for older people. Or maybe they're tailored a little bit differently. We don't have a lot of research on one of the things that we've heard a lot about is like they don't want to have these firearms that, you know, your eyeball or your fingerprint so that only the person who owns it can fire it. But we got to get better at those technologies. I think we have to create safer schools and we have to kind of help our kids see that firearms is not the solution. So I think there's work that we can do that's not specifically on firearms. So that's, again, thinking logically. You want to solve this problem here, you got to work over there. I was just reading something about viruses. Instead of attacking what the pathogen does, you, you attack what creates the virus and the pathogen in the first place. So I think the idea of community violence, so there's not any one solution. What do we do to create safer communities? Let's get engage communities in taking back their streets, not in a way that is gentrification, but in a way that creates partnerships with police and the city council and creating neighborhood associations that are going to mow properties and take care of those properties and make it look like people live there and care about each other. There won't be a place for necessarily for crimes to occur. More eyes on the street kind of thing. After school programming, we've created this Youth Empowerment Solutions Project, helping kids not only develop skills, but maybe be part of the solution instead of the focus of the problem. So to me, it's all of these things. And get back to community policing so that, you know, police aren't vilified, that they're seen as a resource, that Police understand that, you know, the differences in people and don't make assumptions and unconscious biases. And just like we're trying to work with them in schools and not to criminalize a kid who acts out, their brains aren't fully functioning. So kids are going to act out. We don't want to criminalize that. What we want to do is channel that energy in, in positive ways and support the kid and see what help the kid might need. We don't want to send that kid to prison. And I think we can work with police officers to do that, too. I mean, I'm an internal optimist, and I just believe that we can do better and we will do better if there's a will to do it. And we got to get away from this, oh, you know, it's politics. You're a Democrat or you're a Republican, and I own a gun, and so I'm a Republican, and go, go, go. There's lots of Democrats who own guns and hunt and stuff. It's not about politics. It's not about the Second Amendment. It's about what do we need to do to create better places for all of us to live? Because at the end of the day, you know, we all want to go to the city to see the museum or maybe go out to dinner or go to a ball game. We also want to be able to, you know, have our rural communities not be so economically depressed that people are killing themselves. We talked about something about suicide. 90% of suicide attempts with a gun are successful. Yet 
90% of people who try to commit suicide, if they get the help they need, do not try again. So the finality of a firearm in a suicide context doesn't give anybody a second chance when, in fact, most people who try to commit suicide, if given a second chance, they get the help they need and they overcome it. And how can that be bad for families and you know the fabric of a nation? I don't get it, honestly. We've somehow vilified each other, and we have to start coming together to solve this problem, just like we do with cars. I love that, Mark. Oh, thanks. You know, you're so well-spoken, and you touched on so many things that we've shared pieces of those before, and you articulate them so well. It's uh, so I love, well. I love it. I know. I love that. Oh, well, thank you. You must be. You must be a professor or something. Um, <laughs> yeah, or something. I, um, something I didn't hear you touch on that we deal with a lot in our conversations is the role of the parents and the role of the family members. So often we hear about somebody who has the gun in their hand, but we don't hear about the parent. And we've talked about you know unsecured guns some, but what about the role of the parents when we talk about guns in the hands of younger people? I mean, that's a really good point you know i do a lot of work with youth violence prevention because i believe you got to go upstream you got to work at the roots because we need law enforcement we need people at the flannel drip because it's going to happen in medicine we need people who are going to fix the broken leg but what we need to do is also why are people tripping and breaking their legs right we got to figure that out too it's kind of like the, the water pump this is the famous public health example people are getting sick from typhoid well where are they getting it they're getting it at the water pump so we need to treat the people who got sick but now we got to deal with the problem so that people don't keep getting sick. I often say the problem of youth violence prevention or the issue of youth violence is really an adult problem because we've created the world that those kids live in. We've created the media, the tension, the fighting that occurs. I mean, you know, where do they learn this stuff? They learn it from what they see in the media. They learn to see what we do in our families, how we solve problems in the community. So I think parents and adults have a huge role to play here, even more important than the kids in many ways. I think we have to create opportunities for kids to develop skills to work and solve conflicts and deal with issues that they face. But we also have a role to, to role model with them. So there's lots of ways that parents can be engaged in their schools and can be engaged in violence prevention in their schools and creating more positive school climates. And, you know, just quick aside, we work with somebody who's done some work with teachers. Something about 30 to 40% of teachers report being a victim of violence in schools. We often talk about school violence as only a kid problem. And where are they getting it from? They're getting it from disrespect from the kids, often related to the disrespect that they get from the parents. So one thing that parents can do is role model positive behavior yes. you know, and not be doing those kind of behaviors, even with teachers and against teachers. But they can also help create safer communities. And there's a role that they can work in being engaged in creating safer communities. And they can also think about how they raise their children and what kind of home environment they want. We have found that conflict in the family is related to all sorts of problems with kids. When they see people yelling and screaming and throwing things at each other and hitting each other in the family, that gives them the scripts of how they solve their problems. And there's all the psychological literature. There's the idea of script theory that becomes your script. It's vicarious learning or it's learning by, you know, seeing other people do it. You know, the famous Bobo doll experiments. Uh, I don't know if you know those, but 
See, he's an um, endless font. I know. Yeah. It's brilliant. Well, tell us what you have to tell us. Yeah, you well, can't leave us um, hanging. Psychologist Albert Bandura did an experiment that actually helped develop the field of cognitive psychology that people do think. This was out of the world of behaviorism, where behaviorism was, we just respond to what we get rewarded for. That's all it is. That's all emotion is. That's all everything is. So, you know, the absolute radical behaviorism was, we respond to rewards. We also respond to punishments and everything, but really rewards was found to be the best. And if it was variable and you couldn't predict it, you would always engage in positive behavior. So you got the rewards, whether that's a paycheck or positive juice from your family, from members and all that kind of stuff. Well, Bandura came along and he did an experiment with kids and he gave them these Bobo dolls, which I don't know if you remember what those are, but those are, are blow up dolls with sand on the bottom. Uh, if you yeah, hit okay. it, you mm-hmm. punch it, it would fall, you know, fall over and it would just come back straight up, you know, back and forth. So he put kids in a room and some kids saw parents punching them and playing with them and other kids didn't see adults doing that. And then they put the kids in the room with the Bobo doll and the ones with the Bobo doll who saw the adults hitting it, hit the Bobo doll. The other ones did not. So he said, there was no reinforcement there because they watched it on a screen. They didn't get, oh, yeah, let's let's hit this together. They just saw one happen versus another. So he said, there must be something else going on in that kid's life. And so he talked about how do kids learn? One of the ways they learn is by seeing others. And so that kind of was the beginning of what became cognitive psychology, the idea that we actually don't just respond to rewards and punishments and negative reinforcements and all that that there is some thinking that goes on in, in our brains. But there was a debate in the 60s and 70s around that in psychology. Skinner, Skinnerian uh, behaviorism, a Harvard psychologist who promoted this idea of radical behaviorism. So the idea that kids may model behavior, that's an important role that parents can play in helping our kids grow up. The other one that they can play is noticing the signs. That's what Sandy Hook says when they train people you know, know the signs. If you see a friend starting to give away things they care about, you see them withdrawing from what, what they're doing, help that kid get help. Report it. Not to get the kid in trouble, but to get the kid to help. Because 75 to 80% of all mass shooters, for example, had some prior grievance or had some prior problem. So if we catch those problems early and we can detect those things early. So one thing that adults can play is when you see that happening, Get the kid mental health services. Let's destigmatize mental health help. Why is that a problem? Why do we think that's a weakness in humans? It's crazy. It goes back to that ecological thinking where everything is related to everything else and we might fix something over here in one place and it can have an effect down the road in another place. So fascinating. Mark, I could just sit here with a bucket of popcorn and listen to you all day. I wanted to ask you, you know, you have touched on some amazing pieces of work that you've been working on. How can people who want to do something practical find you and get involved in some of these amazing oh, that, things that you're involved in? Well, I think, you know, one place to come is you know, we're working on it being as one stop fits all. You know, the National Center is a core as a part of the Institute of Fire Injury Prevention. And the site is firearm injury, all one word, dot U-M-I-C-H dot E-D-U. Uh, and then you can kind of see the 
kind of work that we're doing. And in there, they should be able to navigate to many of the things that I've talked about today, the greening work, National Center for School Safety work. And if not right away, certainly that'll be a go-to resource for all the work that we're doing here at Michigan. We have folks who are studying ERPO laws, which are the red flag laws, which are the extreme risk protection laws, taking away guns for people who are dangerous themselves or others. That's never been evaluated. So we have some work that's going on there. Amazing. Thank I you for defi- asking that. Yeah, well, I would definitely be putting that in the show notes too. So if you are listening right. along, you can just scroll down and hit the link and it'll take you straight there. The value in all this research is it helps us to know where to put the money in, which yeah. it makes the world go around. Exactly. You know, what, what programs are going to be worth the best bang for our buck, so mm-hmm. to speak? I, I love, love that. that. Oh, I love it. It's so amazing. I feel like this is such a refreshingly positive interview that we're doing because sometimes we talk about stuff that's really heavy, but I feel today we're going in a direction that is going to give some practical tips to people. Mark Zimmerman, you have had quite the career by the sounds of things and what we've just touched on. What do you think you would say is something that you're the most proud of that you will leave as a legacy? Oh, my goodness gracious. That is a really, really, really hard question to ask. She's Um, that way. Because there really really is a lot. I mean, some of the things I'm most proud of are the students that have worked with me and that maybe take some of these ideas and, you know, spread them out, kind of like the uh, folklorish person in American history called Johnny Appleseed. So planting those seeds, the legacy of trying to get, you know, people to talk about firearms and not be afraid to talk about firearms, injury prevention. You know, if I could leave that legacy behind, I think that'd be great. The idea of community engagement and the importance of community voice and all the work and applied research and, you know, taking what we know from science and making it relevant for improving people's lives and, and paying attention to that from the get-go not just leaving that up for somebody else to do. And I don't know if I'm succeeding in any of those, but those are the kinds of things <laughs> that kind of keeps me going, keeps me motivated to do this kind of work. So, but thank you for asking that. I appreciate it. And finally, you've got a little soundbite that you can leave our listeners with. What message would you like to convey to people? Oh, that's interesting. One of my mentors uh, brought this idea of ecology, and I know I've said it many times today, the idea of thinking about, you know, the ecology of a mountain pond or really ecology of biology. He brought it to psychology and brought it to community psychology and to human systems. So the idea of resource cycling, Um, what resources do you need? How do you keep them going? How do you sustain something over time? What happens when the resources dry up or are abundant? So planning on resources. Another one is adaptation. How does a program adapt to the changing political scene, the budgetary scene, and the human development? So how does it adapt over time? And building in that adaptation, the idea of interdependence that I've talked to you about many times, about you know, you can affect something by not always focusing just on it, right? You can work in the areas around it, and that might change the way that one thing leads to another. If you can break that chain, you succeed in preventing it without focusing on the actual problem at all. And then lastly, succession, the idea of thinking about, well, how is this going to succeed over time? So I would say that the one message is in, in around firearm violence is we need to think ecologically. We need to think about the different contexts that you know, firearm violence may occur. And then how do those resources, adaptation, interdependence, and succession play itself out for programs that 
may focus on rural areas or suicide or interpersonal violence or unintentional injury or intimate partner violence, then one solution will not fit all. So how do we think in this broad way about what are the factors that are going on in each one of those places so that we can identify where we can upstream intervene and break that chain of events that lead to the tip of the iceberg of firearm violence. So I think, I guess I'll leave you with that. Thanks for listening. And if you want to know more, Catherine's book, Stop the Killing, is out now. For more details, go to katherineschweit.com. Please consider also supporting our independently made podcast. It's simple to do. Go to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. And for as little as the price of a latte a month, you can be part of the solution to stop the killing. Patreon rewards range from official do-gooder status to ad-free episodes, autographed books, and opportunities to connect with us directly for your business, school, church, or even just a book club chat. But just knowing that you are part of a movement that has the power to make your community safer, well, that's got to taste better than a skinny cappuccino any day. So please head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing now and polish off your do-gooder halo and make sure to include your name so we can give you a shout out. This podcast is a community podcast production. That's con with an N. If you want more content, then head over to community podcast at Instagram, where you'll find trailers on more binge-worthy true crime, like the award-winning podcast Conning the Con. And check out our show notes for all the links mentioned. Finally, if you want one takeaway action that you can do right now that can help make our community safer, please share, rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. Everybody needs to know that they hold the keys to see something and say something. Together, we can stop the killing. It's one of those things you hope never happens, but you better train for it because it will happen and it will happen in places you wouldn't expect. Be ready for it. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2. A new podcast from Crowd Network. Twenty-four hours ago, I found out the person that I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister, Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real-life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con.